Corinthians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, the last part of the chapter. And so if you would turn there in your Bibles or follow along in your uh, sermon outline, that would be great. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Listen carefully to God's word. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've come to your word again this morning. We find that we still need to learn a lot about life and death. We don't understand these things that are so important and why uh, Paul doesn't want us to be uninformed. So Lord, once again, open our eyes and ears to truly hear and truly understand and truly apply this word to our lives. Do this for each of us this morning in his name and for his glory. Amen. In his book, The Air I Breathe, Louis uh, Giglio describes an amazing picture of worship. He says, In multiple cultures, throngs of people numbering into the hundreds of thousands were glued as one to his every move. On every continent, they assembled like an army, waving their hands in the air. Some fell to their knees. Others strained with outstretched hands, hoping for a brief, brief touch from his Seared in my mind is the image of one young girl with a look on her face of total awe. I couldn't believe it. What I was watching was some of the most intense worship I'd ever seen anywhere, far more full-on than much of what I experienced inside the church. He was watching a video clip of a Michael Jackson concert. As most of you know, Michael Jackson the subject of an incredible amount of celebrity worship, died suddenly and unexpectedly this week. In fact, we had several prominent entertainers uh, die this week. And it seems to have affected a ton of people uh, out there in the world. And I was reading some of the reflections various people wrote about this, and a couple stood out. Joel Hathaway is the director of alumni services at Covenant Seminary, and he wrote this Thursday night. This world promises glory, but glory fades. This world promises eternity, but death takes away. 1980s sex symbol Farrah Fawcett died this morning. He wrote it on Thursday, followed by rock and pop star Michael Jackson this evening. Money, fame, glory, power, and influence are powerful mechanisms of trade and economy. Death is blind to such present realities and cares not for status, ability, popularity, or intention. The world promises what it cannot fulfill. There is only one who has conquered death, only one 
who can conquer it still. We read that truth in James chapter 1. It says, For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. In another commentary I read, Andrew Sullivan, a political and cultural commentator for the Atlantic magazine, I think is uh, right on target in his discussion of this tragic life and death of Michael Jackson. He writes, there are two things to say about him. He's writing about Michael Jackson. He says, he was a musical genius and he was an abused child. By abuse, I do not mean sexual abuse. I mean he was used brutally and callously for money and clearly imprisoned by a tyrannical father. He had no real childhood and spent most of his later life struggling to get one. He was spiritually and psychologically abused at a very early age and never recovered. Watching him change his race, his age, and almost his gender, you saw a tortured soul seeking what the rest of us take for granted, a normal life. But he had no compass to find one. No real friends to support and advise him, and money and fame imprisoned him in the delusions of narcissism and self-indulgence. Of course, he bears responsibility for his bizarre life. But the damage done to him by his own family and then by all those motivated more by money and power than by faith and love was irreparable in the end. He died a long time ago. He remained for so long a walking human shell. Sullivan goes on, he says, I loved his music. His young voice was almost a miracle. His poise, in retrospect, eerie. His joy tempered by pain, unbearably uplifting. He made the greatest music video of all time. He made some of the greatest records of all time. He was everything our culture worships. And yet he was obviously desperately unhappy, tortured, afraid, and alone. I grieve for him, but I grieve for the culture that created and destroyed him. That culture is ours, and it is a lethal and brutal one. With fame and celebrity as its core values, with money as its sole motive, it chewed this child up and spat him out. I hope he has the peace now he never had in his life, and I pray that such genius will not be so abused again. I wrote to several people that as much as I disliked his personal lifestyle, he was a pop culture icon. Michael Jackson was the Elvis of my generation. Hard to believe, but he was my age. And uh, he had a radical effect on our culture. He changed music, he changed dance, and he essentially created what we now know of as the modern music video. An immense talent and a very sad life. As most of you know, I schedule out these sermon series pretty far in advance. The series on Thessalonians was laid out last March, and now it's the end of June. And only God knew how timely the words of today's passage would be in light of these events. We start off, we read, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. We're going to watch a lot of grieving this week for the people who have died last week. And a lot of them are going to grieve as people who have no hope. 
And that's what today's passage is all about. Trying to understand what hope is and what hope we can have when our dreams and loves, our friends and families have died and been buried. If you've lived for any length of time, you've had to bury someone you love. And you felt the sting of regret and the sorrow of unfinished business, the paralyzing confusion and the emptiness of loss. You've probably also found your mind flooded with questions about life beyond the grave. In 1 Thessalonians 4, in these verses, uh, 13 through 18, we read the words of the Apostle Paul as he addresses some of those concerns in this church in Thessalonica. The very first generation of Christians was beginning to die off. Most of those people believed that Jesus would return in their lifetime. And now they had questions. Did their death mean that, that those who died were going to miss the second coming of Christ? They were going to miss his reign on earth? Would those people miss all the glory that had been promised? And this text answers some of those questions. This passage is one of the most popular second coming texts in the Bible. It gives us a great picture of that day. However, the text really isn't trying to teach us about the second coming. So much as to help us understand the reason for our hope and to encourage us in that hope in the face of old age and death. And we have to be careful not to get distracted, to get so caught up in what it says about the second coming that we miss the main point of the passage, which is because Jesus is coming back, you can have hope for your life now. Paul starts by telling us that we have a bold assurance. Verses 13 and 14, a bold assurance. I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one that's ever had questions about death. If you listen in on any discussion about the return of Christ, uh, someone will inquire, but what about those who've already died? What happens to Christians between their death and Jesus' return? Apparently the church in Thessalonica uh, asked questions like that too. Thessalonian church had buried now her share of loved ones, and Paul wants the members who remain to be at peace regarding the ones who've gone ahead. Many of you have buried loved ones as well. And just as God spoke to them through this word, God speaks to you through this word. If you celebrate a marriage anniversary alone this year, God speaks to you. If your child made it to heaven prior to making it to kindergarten, God speaks to you. If you lost a loved one to violence, if you learned more than you ever wanted to know about disease, if your dreams were buried as they were lowered the casket, God speaks to you. He speaks to all of us who have stood or will stand in the soft dirt near an open grave. And to us, he gives us this confident word, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And here Paul's contrasting two kinds of people, those who grieve without hope and those who grieve with hope. First, notice that both groups grieve. 
There's nothing wrong with being sad about someone dying. It's a natural, normal, perfectly appropriate response to loss. There's never a reason to be embarrassed by tears or by wishing to have someone back who has died. And Paul refers to believers who die as those who sleep. And because of this, there are some people who have developed a doctrine called soul sleep. They believe when we die, we go into something, a state like uh, suspended animation, somewhat of an unconscious state, till the return of Christ. And at that time, we awaken and are raised from the dead. I do not believe that that's what the Bible teaches. Scripture clearly refutes that idea, although it isn't clear exactly what form uh, we will take between our death and the second coming of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul talked about being away from the body and at home with the Lord. He sees a distinction between the body that's buried and the soul that inhabited that body. In Philippians 1, he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul faces his possible execution, and he struggled with whether, whether it would be better to die and be with Jesus, and he said that's far better, or to remain alive to labor for the Lord here on earth. Now, if death resulted in soul sleep, the debate would be pretty pointless. If we're not going to be with Christ any sooner, whether we die now or later, then why not remain alive as long as you can? In Revelation chapter 6, we read about the souls of the martyrs who cry out to the Lord during the time of tribulation. They couldn't do this if they're in soul sleep. It seems evident that when we die, our body is buried, but our soul, who we really are, lives on. Now think of it this way. It's an analogy. All analogies fall short at some point, and this one does too. We're trying to help you understand a little bit. When you go to sleep, physically go to sleep tonight, your mind continues to be active. You dream, you're still aware of sounds, like your alarm clock. Uh, most of you are aware, you know. You continue to hash over the problems and issues of the day, even as you sleep. And death is something like that. The body is laid to rest, but the soul remains very much alive. It's not asleep. It's not dormant. And it has some sort of visible form, similar to our bodies um, and recognizable as us, but without earthly flesh. It's a, like a spiritual body, not a physical body. And we don't exactly know. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what we'll look like, exactly what we'll be like between our death and the second coming of Christ. But we know that we will be somewhat recognizable somehow. And there are a lot of people who think that's just wishful thinking. Paul says our confidence about these things comes from the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because Christ died, our sin is paid for. We are forgiven. Because Christ was raised, we know there's life beyond the grave. Jesus said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. I start every funeral with this passage. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 
and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Our confidence in heaven is based on the strong and reliable testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of sinners. The Bible does not teach that everyone goes to heaven. Paul said, verse 14, that through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. These promises are for believers. They're for Christians. I'm sure that's politically incorrect, but that's what Jesus taught. And for believers, there is the assurance that death doesn't get the last word, but that the last word belongs to Jesus. And that should bolster our faith. Furthermore, after giving this assurance, Paul goes on to make a clear declaration, verses 15 through 17. A clear declaration. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is going to return to earth. It's not a secondary doctrine, it's a central doctrine. Here are just a few of the passages that point to the return of Christ, that point to the second coming of Christ. Acts 1.11, uh, after the ascension, the angel said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And then in Matthew 24, we read, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. In Second Peter chapter 3, we read, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. If you add to these verses almost the entire book of Revelation and the Old Testament prophets, primarily Daniel and Ezekiel, whose prophetic passages point to a future day when Christ will reign and you see that the second coming is a cornerstone doctrine of the church. And Paul tells us here that he is passing on to us a word from the Lord about what's going to take place. This word could have been from the teaching of Jesus during his lifetime, uh, like the reading from Matthew 24. Uh, the additional details found here may have been things that Jesus said, but were not recorded in the Gospels. It's also possible that this was a word uh, from the Lord that was revealed directly to Paul by the Lord, and the text just doesn't make it clear. But it just says, Paul's saying, this is not coming from me, it's coming from the Lord. And this is what it says. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And we learn at least four things from that text. 
First, those who are living at the time of the return of Christ will not precede those who have died. The great day of his coming is going to involve all believers, those who have already died, those who are still living on earth. No believer will be excluded. Second, the Lord will come down from heaven unmistakably. There will be, it says, a cry of command with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the picture is that almost of a, a bugler in the military community, you know, summoning the troops. You know, maybe a picture for you would be, uh, you know, as a kid when you were playing outside and mom would come to the door and call out that supper's ready. Either case, people come running. A lot of moms may dispute that, but, you know. <laughs> Depending how you read this text, there could be three different things, a loud command, a voice from the archangel, and a trumpet blast. Or it could be one thing, a loud command from the voice of the archangel that serves as the trumpet call of God. I honestly don't think it really matters. What is clear is you're going to know it when it happens. Third, both the dead and living believers will be caught up together. Now, in the uh, Latin translation of the New Testament called the Vulgate, the Latin for that word, caught up, is rapto. And it's from that word, that phrase, that we get the doctrine called the rapture. All Bible-believing Christians believe in the rapture. In other words, they all believe there will be a day when we'll all be caught up together with Christ. However, there is a lot of division on how to understand the rapture. And I don't want to lose sight of the main context of the passage, which is about hope. But I do believe you need to understand the term because it is very prominent in bad Christian literature. There are two primary beliefs about the rapture. There's actually lots, but there's two main ones. One group believes the rapture will be a secret event. The Lord will come and suddenly take all believers from the earth, leaving the rest of the wor world bewildered. And the non-believers who are left behind will face a time of intense persecution called the tribulation, which is clearly referenced in Revelation. This will happen either before the tribulation starts or midway through the tribulation, depending on your viewpoint. Now, this is the view that's proposed by the Left Behind books and many of the prophecy preachers on television. And I personally think it is bad and misleading theology and a gross misinterpretation of Scripture. But it's the most well-known view, and so you need to be aware of it. A second group would point out the events that describe this gathering of saints. It's also found in Matthew 24. It's also found in 1 Corinthians 15. Gives the impression that this event will be anything but secret. It's described as being preceded by shouts and trumpet calls, the voice of an archangel, very public, very attention-getting. And these people will believe the rapture will take place after the tribulation and will happen at the same time concurrent with the actual second coming of Christ. And that's what most Reformed folks believe. 
they believe, and I believe, the saints will be caught up together to be part of a massive welcoming party for the coming king. One scholar explains, the words to meet, we have in our uh, translation, to meet the Lord in the air, those words to meet translate a unique term used only two other times in the New Testament. It's used in Matthew 25 in the parable of the ten maidens, when the maidens are called out to meet the groom and join the marriage procession. And then it's used a second time in Acts 28, when outside Rome, some Christian brothers came out to meet Paul and escort him back into the city. And it's a technical term for meeting a visiting dignitary. The delegation honored the visitor by going outside the city, meeting him and his entourage on the road, and then together the entire party would proceed back into the city with great fanfare. Well, we've seen something like that in the Bible. It sounds very similar to the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. People came with Jesus from Bethany, and then some came out of Jerusalem when they heard he was coming to welcome him. And this view of the rapture sees the tribulation period as a time of purifying the church, separating the true and false believers, just as persecution has always done in the past and just as it continues to do today. But please be careful. This is not the rapture. Second coming of Christ's central doctrine. The rapture, not so much. And people get pretty dogmatic about which view of the rapture they hold. And the important thing in my mind is that when we die, we are caught up with Christ and we live beyond the grave. I encourage you to examine the evidence and read the passages and draw your own conclusion. On this issue, I am less concerned with being dogmatic and more concerned with remaining open to the truth than to some system of doctrine. Read the text. God gave you a mind. He expects you to use it. So back to our context. And it's fourth, and we don't want to miss the most important words in these uh, verses, and that's, and so we will always be with the Lord. That's a great prize. That's the ultimate goal. On this great day, we'll no longer have to search for God. We'll no longer feel alone. We'll never again feel like our prayers aren't getting past the ceiling. We'll never be afraid. We'll never feel lost because we will be with the Lord. And because that's true then we're to consider it an abiding comfort. Verse 18, an abiding comfort. He ends and says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's always unique because when you have a, a passage that's divisive and people argue over, but then the passage ends with encourage one another with these words. We don't always do real good at that. But these are encouraging words. Certainly we'll have some questions. This idea of the souls that have died remaining alive with Christ in some sort of embodied form and the bodies of those who are still alive meeting together in the air, it's all a little hard to grasp. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul explains a little more. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. 
Most people know those verses from Handel's Messiah. It seems that at this gathering of the saints, the dead will receive their imperishable bodies, and those who are caught up from the earth will be transformed or changed into their new bodies instantly. And surely someone will ask, well, what kind of bodies will these bodies be? Will we be old people? Will we be young? Will we be able to recognize our family and our friends? And there's been endless debate on these issues. Based on what we know in the Bible, it seems that these new bodies will be ageless. They won't be worn down by disease, decay, and infirmities, all of which are the effects of the fall, the effects of sin. In other words, they'll be different from what we know now, and even they'll be different from what we can conceive of. Paul likens this difference to the difference between a seed that's planted in the ground and what actually results from planting that seed. Our new bodies will be different, will be better than our current bodies. Amen? not stuck with this forever. It's a good thing. You know, if you've ever gone to a reunion, like a high school or a college reunion or something like that, you know there's times when you don't recognize people who many years ago were one of your friends, and you don't recognize them. And we're all a little concerned we'll get to heaven, and we're not going to recognize, you know, family members and close friends and the saints of old. But I think we will. I think we're going to know each other in a deeper way. We will know the person rather than simply knowing each other by the, the form that we inhabit. In other words, I believe that I will recognize you, not just your form. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul reflects on the future with these words. He says, for now... We see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. He's saying, we don't see everything clearly now, but then we're going to see everything exactly the way it is. He says, for I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And these things should encourage us. Think about it this way. You're headed someplace you've never been before on your vacation. We're going to start doing that next weekend. And when you do that, you're going someplace you've never been before. Uh, whoever is driving is preoccupied, you know, looking for road signs and exit numbers and, and landmarks because you don't want to get lost. The trip's already taken too long. You know, you're on your 400th chorus of are we there yet? And uh, you miss, you know, the joy of the journey. You get there. You get to your destination. Um, but on the other hand, if you're going someplace that you've been to many times, or even if you haven't been there, maybe you're in the passenger uh, there, you're not driving, you tend to notice more what's around you. You see the sights, you enjoy the beauty, you notice the changes in the terrain, you see the people. And Paul wants us to understand that if we know where we're going when we die, we should find courage for life here and now. If we understand that death is not the end of the story, but simply a turn on the road to our ultimate destination, death loses its sting. If we understand that Christ will one day return, we can spend less time trying to not die and more time actually living. Good to know. 
But Paul wasn't sure that the Thessalonians really knew this as well as they should. And to be honest, I'm not sure that we know this as well as we should. And therefore, I think each of us needs to answer some questions. There's three critical questions that come out of this text. And the first one is, are you one who is in Christ or are you living apart from him? Perhaps you aren't sure. Let me help you. Have you ever recognized that you're a sinful person? Do you feel that you have lied, making you a liar? That you've taken things that weren't you, yours, making you a thief? You've looked at and thought about people in a lustful way, making you an adulterer at heart. And you've made other things more important than God, making you an idolater. Do you see there's nothing you can do to erase your sin? Doing what's right doesn't erase the wrong that you've done any more than doing your homework in school overcomes past assignments that you didn't do. When we do what's good, we're just doing what's required. There's no way to undo the bad. And we can live in slavery to this idea of having to be good enough for God, knowing all the time that we can't be. And therefore, people are stricken with a fear of death because they have to face up to this not good enough scenario. But the Bible speaks to this fear as well. Hebrews 2, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He, Jesus wants to and has delivered us from the fear of death. And you see, third question, do you see the sacrifice of Jesus as your only hope to be right with God? Do you see that Jesus was God who became man to give his perfect life as a payment for the sin that you committed? And having seen that, are you willing to put your trust and confidence, your faith, not in your goodness, but in his free gift? Are you willing to trust him for the future and follow him in the present? And have you done so? And if you trust him, then you're his follower and can have absolute confidence that you will live even though you die. But what about those who don't turn to Christ? Here's what Paul says, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they'll suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe because our testimony to you was believed. So there's dramatically different conclusions to life depending on whether or not you believe Christ and his word. If you believe Christ and his word, it says you get to marvel at the majesty of Christ upon his return. But if you don't believe Christ and his word, then the Bible says you'll suffer punishment. Perhaps that's another reason people fear death. And even if they don't believe, we have a society of people who are trying to find ways to live on after this life is over. We see it in the story of Diamond Dave. Diamond Dave, I gravitate towards weird news, which uh, I'm pretty convinced is a demonstration for the need 
of the need for continued progressive sanctification in my life. But it's true, I read a lot of stories thinking, you can't make this stuff up. And I came across an article entitled, Many Baby Boomers Are Dying to Find Creative Alternatives to Typical Funerals. Here's an excerpt. I know we're over time. Bear with me. Jeweler David Daquin knows that he'll be stone dead someday, and the idea tickles him, at least the stone part. That's because David Daquin will become a brilliant half-carat diamond that will dangle from the neck of the woman he loves. Similar diamonds will become rings for each of his three sons. Daquin is 49 and in fine health, but when he dies, he plans for his cremated ashes to be made into four royal blue gems. One will go to Rebecca Green, now his fiancée, he will also design the signet rings bearing the diamonds that go to his sons. David Daquin, whose nickname is Diamond Dave, he's a jeweler, had this thought when he heard about his post-cremation option. He said, I can be Diamond Dave forever. His choice reflects a growing movement towards non-traditional funeral alternatives. The funeral industry uh, sources say people are choosing more and more unusual ways of making their final farewell. Six feet under, how about 24,000 miles above? Your ashes can be loaded into a rocket and fired into orbit around the earth. Or if you like, your remains can go to the moon or into deep space. Prefer to explore new depths instead? Sleep with the fishes. Have your ashes mixed with concrete cast into a replica of a coral reef and sunk at a spot of your choosing. <laughs> a California company packs ashes into fireworks and puts on a show. <laughs> Talk about going out with a bang. A Mississippi firm blends ashes into paintings and an Iowa outfit stuffs ashes into duck decoys basketballs, or shotgun shells. Seriously? Shotgun shells? Say goodbye to Grandma. Pull. It's one way of scattering the ashes. All true, I don't make this stuff up. And I think the idea is the specter of death just has a weird effect on us. It just does weird things to us. We don't want to accept it. And we do all kinds of things to deny that it's going to happen. And sometimes we live in, in mortal fear of our own mortality. And so we're driven to conjure up bizarre and creative funeral alternatives. But death is one of those sure things in life. And it poses great spiritual and emotional challenges for each of us. And in case you're wondering, when it comes to those momentous ceremonies in life, baptisms, weddings, funerals, I'm very much of a traditionalist. Please don't ask me to go skeet shooting with grandma. Okay? <laughs> Not up for that. Don't want to do that. And why am I a traditionalist? Because I have hope. And hope is the theme of the traditional funeral service. You know, life is messy. I wish it weren't. But somewhere along the way, 
we will run, each of us, the full gamut of human experience. We'll face tragedy and discouragement. We'll be overwhelmed and we'll want to give up. And instead of waking up in the morning saying, this could be the day when Jesus comes back, we wake up and say, I can't believe I have to face another day. And we want to somehow cocoon ourselves away from all the pain. What then? What do we do? Well, we're still part of the company of faith. We still have that same sure hope, which Hebrews calls an anchor for our soul. We can walk alongside one another and remind one another constantly that the pain of this life has an end. There is a day coming when Christ will come again to be crowned the King of kings and the Lord of lords when he wipe away every tear, when justice will be given out fairly and everything will be set right, when God's new heaven and new earth will come and this place will become what God always intended it to be. And in the midst of tragedy and struggle, we can stand with each other and say, Jesus, the one who died and rose again, the one who is coming again, is our hope. This is where we place our faith. And when we fully understand this glorious hope, Paul writes to Timothy and says, the coming of Christ, our blessed hope. When we understand that hope that's out there for us, when by faith and by the testimony of God's word and the reality of what he's already done for us, we look down that road and anticipate the day when he'll come again, then we'll be liberated from the slavery of ourselves and the slavery of the drudgery of life and the slavery of the fear of death because we're living in the stream of history that points towards that great event of Christ's return. And people who are living in hope are to be liberated people. People who have no hope are enslaved people. And people who question their hope are certainly burdened. But God calls us to live in the hope of Christ's return and to encourage each other until that day. That's what Paul's saying. That's what we're to believe. And that's how we're supposed to live. Think about that. You need to pray.